0: Please pray with me. Father, we ask that uh, you would give us a joy in our salvation. Lord, that you would pour your Holy Spirit into our hearts, that we would once again be refreshed and be able to serve you in gladness all of our days. Amen please be seated. Well, this morning we're um, continuing with our series in the Canticles, and we're looking today at the Jubilate. The Jubilate. It's uh, Psalm 100, um, and it's found in the Book of Common Prayer, both in the Psalter, um, but um, also in daily morning prayer, which is where we read it from today. One of the first things that you notice, if you open up with me, in daily morning prayer, I thought I had this marked. Page 15. One of the things you'll notice in daily morning prayer is that along with the Venite, which we discussed earlier this year, the Jubilate starts us into scripture. It starts us into the readings of scripture in this service. And it's to prepare our hearts to receive God's holy word. That's the purpose liturgically why it's there. Um, It's Retaining that liturgical purpose actually from our Hebrew forebearers because Psalms 95 through 100 were the Psalms that would be read as God's people went into the courts of the temple, which you see referenced even here, that to prepare them to be in the presence of their God. And notice what do both the first verse of the venite and the first verse of the jubilate on 14 and 15 respectively, what do those both have in common? Songs, yes? Be joyful, be joyful in the old translation, be ye joyful, right? Or if we're putting it into a more clear modern English translation uh, as a lay catechist candidate Caleb said to us on Thursday, you, be joyful. You, be joyful. Be joyful. As we come into the presence with God, he's telling us that we are to be joyful, and it's not a command without power, and it's not a command that we're asked to do without his assistance. As we go on in the canticle, we're to be joyful because of what God has done for us, right? And if we actually think about it, if we meditate upon it, how can we not be joyful coming before the Lord who has done so much for us? You see, that is the heart of worship. And so as we look here at this canticle, it's the joy of God that lifts men's hearts. And we notice Four different things. One, we're told to make a joyful song before the Lord. Two, to know that God is God. Three, to go into his gates with thanksgiving. Four, that God is gracious and merciful. All four of those are compacted into this canticle, this short song. So let's jump right into it. Look at verse 1 with me. Oh, be joyful in the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with a song. Oh, be joyful in the Lord, all you lands. This is the Coverdale translation of this, which is what we use for our Psalter. But in the King James Version or the English Standard Version, it's translated, make a joyful noise. Make a joyful noise. Both are actually correct. They get at different things. If you look at the Hebrew behind this, the Hebrew word here behind this, the verb is actually a word that's pronounced ruah, which means shout, shout out, cry out, blast, blast. Be joyful, blast forth with your joy. And, you know, um, I try to do this singing. It's not always pretty, but it's sincere. Blast forth with your joy before the Lord. That's the Lord's desire as we begin worship. As we saw earlier this year in the Bididicite and other canticles, this is that imperative, but it's a joyful imperative. It's a joyful command. And it isn't about doing just an action, Right? That's the other part of this. That's why the Coverdale translation I like better because it says be joyful instead of just make a joyful noise. You can make a joyful noise without being joyful, right? You can fake it. But the Coverdale version here says be joyful, the, at, the, at the center of yourself when coming before the presence of God, be joyful. Be joyful. Come with joy. And you might think to yourself, well, that's kind of hard sometimes. We'll get back to that. Let's look at the next line. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with a song. The word serve here is also a multi-dimensional word. It doesn't mean just to do service to God, although that's part of it. It means a lot of things. And so we can look at a lot of our tasks in light of this word, right? You might serve God in different ways. You might be preparing the altar for communion. That's a silent service before God that people don't see, but is really important, right? Bob and Kathy do that for us from week to week, so that we can, um, so that we can come to the table of our Lord. You might serve Him with your finances, right? We talk about that today, as today's in-gathering Sunday, so we'll be bringing pledges forth. That's a service to God. It's a promise to God, a pledge to God, right? And Corinthians says that we should pledge how? Joyfully, right? You see the connection here. Serving God can look like taking extra time to talk with somebody just about your faith, just not being in such a hurry. Hearing the Holy Spirit say to you, I need you to serve me in this situation because you're here and you're one of mine and you can speak to this situation, right? It can be many different things. And all of those are service. But there's actually a specific type of service that's being talked about in this psalm. And that is the service associated with worship. With worship that to serve God, first and foremost, we have to worship him. Which is why sometimes as a church, we get our priorities out of order and we try to go out and do things for God rather than first worshiping God and serving him that way. And God says to us, no, if you want to be fueled for doing things for me in the kingdom, you must start with worship and being fed in the kingdom. That's why Sunday attendance is so important. It's why Worshiping together as a community is so important because that's the center of, our, of our, ourselves in community with God, right? I was telling the um, baptism class upstairs, or, or the uh, we're going through, oh, what are we doing now? The prayer book, yeah, the prayer book class. <laughs> Sometimes I get lost. We were going through the prayer book class and we we're talking about baptism this morning and we we're saying, you know, As Anglicans, we do that in community. Why? Because it's a community thing. It's not just a personal thing, right? It's a community thing. So we do baptisms on Sunday here. So it is with our being fueled up for the week, right? If you look at the end of our service, after we take Holy Communion, there's verbiage that's used that talks about this, right? That we might be equipped to go forth and do the things that God has prepared for us to do. Serve the Lord, but serve him with gladness, says the canticle. With joy. It's actually a slightly different word, but it means with joy, with gaiety, with mirth. Serve the Lord with joy, gaiety, and mirth. Come before his presence with a song. The idea is that you're so joyful that you can't help but to break forth in song when you come before God. And yet I look at myself, and that's not often the way I am before starting the service here. I'm frazzled too often and thinking about the week too often. And, you know, I have to take hold of myself and say, I'm entering into the holy of holies. Before God, he has given me this presence of his to come into and remind myself what I'm doing. Maybe you're the same way. Scholar Arthur Weiser writes this. He says that we should long to serve God. And he says that this note of joy is utterly devoted to God and leaves behind it every earthly sorrow that may burden the heart. This note of joy is utterly devoted to God and leaves behind it every earthly sorrow that may burden the heart. That's really a beautiful turn of phrase. And the sentiment is more important, right? The uh, the substance, rather, is more important, right? That... When we come before the presence of God, we're coming before God in a way that we don't the rest of the week. In a way that we are to leave behind those sorrows, those things that are pulling us down, right? How do we do that? Well, keep going. What kind of heart yields the joyful attitude and the motive for worship for being in the presence of God that's being talked about here. It's probably helpful for you to consider some other situations that involve joy in your life. Think about it. And joy is that deep-seated, beyond that superficial happiness, right? Where do you see joy in other places in your life? Maybe when you've seen a, a friend that you haven't seen in a long time, right? that you've been apart from in person, or it could even be a phone call, right? You see that name on your phone, and you're like, oh, I haven't talked to this person in so long. It'd be really good to talk to him. That's a type of joy, right? When you come home to a loved one, that's a type of joy. Or when you encounter someone at work that you really like, there's a type of joy there. When your dog greets you at the door, That's a type of joy. In some ways, I think dogs demonstrate to us a pure joy, a pure joy, because they leave behind everything and come to the door wagging their tail. I have a dog, Molly is her name, and she annoys me a lot. But one of the things that, (laughs) she's still a puppy. One of, the things, one of the things that I love is that I come home from work and no matter what has happened that day, I put the key in the door, open the door, and there she is wagging her tail so hard that it's you know, knocking against her sides. <laughs> Sometimes barking, waking up the baby, which isn't so hot. But there is a pure joy there. There's a pure joy there. We see it in life. Do we feel that way? And more importantly, are our hearts disposed to be that way when we come before the presence of God? What's the cause of joy in your life? Well, there's some common things, right? We've talked about examples, but in those examples, we see going from absence into presence, right, of somebody or something, of knowing and being known by the other person, right? That creates joy. Those are the common threads. And of course, God knows this. This is not news to him. He created us this way, right? To go from absence to presence, to go from being unknown to being known. Look at the next phrase, because I don't think this is constructed. I don't think that this is coincidental. Be assured that the Lord, he is God. Be assured that the Lord, he is God. Kind of sounds like a, a silly thing to say. Know that God is God? Well, of course, that's a... Tautology, right? A is A. God is God? But what's really being addressed here? Be assured, know ye that the Lord, he is God in the King James. Be assured that the Lord is God. Notice, it's punching below the idea of just knowledge and into the motives of the heart. Know that God is God. Know his presence, is what the psalmist is saying. I like the Canticles translation better than the, the Bible's translation, the various translations here, that the be assured in the Coverdale, as opposed to know ye that the Lord He is God. Be assured that He's God, because assured is more than just knowing, right? It's that motivation, it's that heart of things, it's it's knowing in your knower. That God is God, deep down. That assurance. We're assured of that. That the Lord is God. Again, in the English, we miss some of this. In the Hebrew, there's more being said here. Know that the Lord, and the word here that's used Lord is actually Yahweh, God's proper name. Know that the Lord is God. And for the Jew... That has a ton of stuff built into it, baked in, right? Yahweh, I am that I am. God's proper name that he gives to Moses in Exodus 3. He's God. He's God. With that comes monotheism. With that comes goodness. With that comes a ton of different things that we just take for granted. Not all gods are equal. But God is the God, says this canticle. The Hebrew God, the Christian God, is God. This says to us. Even more, it says that he knows us and that he loves us. Right? Be assured that the Lord, he is God. Next part of the verse. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It is he that made us, not we ourselves. First of all, that's a, a, um, a, claim, a claim of a specific type of truth, right? That God made us, not we ourselves. Therefore, you're not your own. You're not your own. Even before Jesus died for you and bought you with a price, as the New Testament says, you still were not your own. Because God made you. God gave you life. God give you life. The canticle asserts that, and it also asserts that he knows us personally, as I said earlier. Right? It's this idea that comes from Psalm 139, verse 13, for you formed my inmost parts, says the psalmist. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, says Psalm 139, 13. That God knows us intimately, more intimately than we can know ourselves even. As hard as that is to believe. That he knows us that way. He created us. He's made us. We are his, not and we were made by him, not ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture is the next part. There's actually more going on again in the Hebrew here. You're going to hear that again and again because there's always more going on in the Hebrew. The idea that God made us is also not just referring to us as individuals, but it's referring to us as a people, right? Going back to that idea of community. God has constituted us. You could translate this, not we ourselves. God has constituted us, not we ourselves. God has put us in this place, in this time, in this building, in this family of God today for a specific reason. Now for the Hebrews, this is saying God made them a people. Right? God made them a people. Looking back into the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 7, 6, God's people are told, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God made the Hebrews of old, his Old Testament people. And he makes the church again in covenant his people too. And so we can say this with the Hebrews of old, with certainty. God has made us, not we ourselves. We had another echo of it this morning in Malachi, didn't we? Did you notice as Phil, our lector, read Malachi 3? What does God say about his people in Malachi 3? What's he call them? The end of the chapter, verse 16 there. Then arose who feared those who feared the Lord and spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And the book of remembrance was written before them of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And here's what the Lord says, verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Treasured possession is what God calls us as his people. He has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his sheep of his pasture, of his pasture. That's a really profound thing. And again, I'm going to sound like a broken record from last week, but... If this doesn't make you joyful, I don't know what will. I don't know what will. If knowing that the God of the universe looks at you and says, treasured possession because you're mine, because I love you that much, what, what can make you joyful beyond that? If God, who knows all things in all places, can look at you and say, I know you and I take joy in knowing you, what could be more important? What could Bring us to joy more than that. We are his. And therefore, because we're the sheep of his pasture, we can enter his gates, not with fear, but with joy. Again, the theme. Look back. The next verse. Oh, go your way into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and speak good of his name. Oh, go your way into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Do you see it's causally connected to the prior verse? Because we're his people, because we're the sheep of his pasture, we can come before him, and we ought to come before him with thanksgiving and praise for all that he's done for us. God is gracious to us, and we are his. Be thankful unto him and speak good of his name. can also be translated, and bless his name. Or exalt His name. Exalt His name. So don't just be joyful in your heart of hearts, but exalt Him in song, in speech, in worship, in life. Exalt God for His glorious name. For the Lord is gracious, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures from generation to generation. To generation. For the Lord is gracious. The Hebrew here is a word which I think I'm pronouncing right, Toby. It means that he's pleasant. He's good to be with, not just morally good, but he's pleasant to be with. And forever his truth endures from generation to generation. You know, a lot changes today, doesn't it? From day to day. Sometimes it seems like we're lost in the change. I love there's a, there's a um, collect in the Book of Common Prayer that talks about the chances and changes of the day. But here in the Jubilate, we're reminded that those changes are not eternal. God is eternal. You see that the old saying that the only thing that will never change is that there will be change is actually not true <laughs> because God is eternal his truth is changeless i am the alpha and the omega omega he says in revelation god is the same yesterday today and tomorrow for thousands of years his character his person of being gracious And loving, gracious, loving, kindness, some of the old translations render this, will never never change. He is who he is. Notice, that's the core of what ought to make us joyful. We have to get to the end here of the jubilate to see it one of that, those core pieces is God's changelessness, that we can push into that. And that whatever the world throws at us, whatever the world redefines, whatever the world tries to beat out of us, we know as God's people that God is changeless and loves us forever. Hold on to that, friends. But don't just hold on to it. Let it give you joy. Let it sink in. Why is it that this particular canticle is not an option in daily morning prayer? It's an option with the venite, actually. You can say either of them, but they have the same stuff in them. Some of the other canticles will change out, like from season to season, but these two are always said by a good Anglican Christian every day. Why? Because we need to hear it. We need to hear Psalm 100 every day. We need to be reminded that we have all the reason to be joyful. Despite pain, despite despair, despite changes, despite the lies that we're told that no one loves us, despite the loneliness that assails us, despite all of that, here in the Jubilate is the center of our joy, which is ultimately found in Christ Jesus, do you see? Because we can sing this as people in the New Covenant that has, have been given the Holy Spirit. We can sing this as the people that Malachi predicts in chapter 3, that treasure, treasured possession that knows God in a way that no one has ever known God before, because God is in you. God is in you. The Holy Spirit's in you and with you. So be joyful in the Lord. All ye lands, all people can be joyful in God if they seek Him and find Him, if they make Him the center. their lives there's nothing more important than that when you think about it actually meeting God once weekly and hopefully more than once weekly is the most important part of our lives because this life is but a flash the next one is forever So be joyful in the Lord, who knows you, who loves you, who lovingly made you, who lovingly knit you into this community, who saves you, and who has secured your future eternally. With certainty, be joyful, O people of God. Amen.